welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Richard Sears, science writer for Madden America. I'm here today with Dr. Lucas Rickert, the George Erdang Chair in the History of Pharmacy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Historical Director for the American Institute of the History of Pharmacy. He's published several books, including A Prescription for Scandal, Conservatism, Consumer Choice, and the Food and Drug Administration during the Reagan era, Strange Trips, Science, Culture, and the Regulation of Drugs, and most recently, Break On Through, Radical Psychiatry, and the American Counterculture. His fourth book, Cannabis, Global Histories, will be available later this year. Welcome, Dr. Rickert, and thank you for speaking with us today. Hey, thanks for the invite. All right, so we're just going to jump right in. Um, first, I just wanted to ask you about uh, what brought you to the to the discipline of pharmacy and psychiatry. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess first off, Richard, thanks for having this conversation with me. It's it's always nice to share my ideas and thoughts and work, and I really enjoyed contributing to Mad America. I respect what you guys are doing and. Hopefully, I can write for you more in the future. Um, you know, the history of psychiatry and mental health uh, has often been a really big draw um, for professional historians and the public uh, more generally, uh, and that includes me. Um, so I think the, the subject area is just by nature uh, incredibly important and incredibly fascinating, especially now. Uh, in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, about me, I guess I started out as uh, a scholar of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, it was around uh, 2008-09 uh, that I found some historical documents that talked about radicals in mental health. And this was set in the 1960s and the, and the early 1970s. And, and these uh, mental health radicals they described themselves this way. Uh, they identified with certain countercultural values. Um, they cared about really relevant issues, things that we talk about right now, uh, racism um, and the environment and militarism and political division. So it really grabbed a hold of me when I got these documents. Uh, it, it just sort of, these documents sunk their teeth in pretty deeply. And, um, Anyway, getting a hold of these historical documents, I guess, was a catalyst. Uh, I, I was in Philadelphia at a library, and I just thought, whoa, uh, wow. I mean, this could make for a really intriguing project. The, and so that turned out to be break on through. Uh, and so the, it was a pretty fascinating personal journey to, to try and develop the project and write the book. And... So, yeah, I guess that's kind of it in a nutshell, Richard. And I suppose what I wanted to do was write a different kind of book, maybe. Um, a lot of excellent authors and scholars had already written about specific treatments that have been featured on Madden America. So a lot about antidepressants, a lot about ECT, uh, a lot of work already features on Mad America about um, psychoanalysis and biological psychiatry so that a lot of a lot of fantastic authors have done that and so i guess what i tried to do is write a more expansive slightly more experimental book um 
and try and offer a sort of reinterpretation of medical and mental health knowledge in the 70s. So I want to talk a little bit about um, kind of the turn in, in the period you're writing about, the 70s and the, the, the counterculture from the 60s as well, um, and the turn in the larger social world towards kind of social, economic, and political concerns. Um, and we kind of got the biopsychosocial model from that in psychology. So instead of just concentrating on biological and genetic stuff, um, we also, you know, started looking at psychological concerns, so more inside of the person, um, how do you feel, what's going on with anxiety, interstates, and also the the environmental social concerns, what's going on around you, what's going on with the groups that you're a member of. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to maybe specific events or decisions or just anything like that within the discipline of psychiatry that, that got us to that point. Yeah, Richard, your question speaks really to the complexity uh, and the change during the 60s and the 70s. And you sort of said it all, like there's lots happening with different events and, and decisions and disagreements and problems, both within psychiatry and psychology, or, you know, I guess some people call them the side disciplines, but then also outside um, in society. So I guess what I, what, I, what I try to do in the book and in some of my other writings, is capture just how complex the era was. Uh, so mental health knowledge and practice was highly contested. Debates about the self and um, techniques like psychoanalysis and other techniques were supercharged at given times. So that expansive big-picture approach that I took was, I suppose, a way to try and uh, capture just how many ideas and issues were floating about in the 60s and the 70s uh, and connect what was going on with the counterculture and Vietnam protests with what was going on within the American Psychiatric Association, within the American Psychological Association. So I suppose what I want to get across to listeners uh, is that you know certain bodies of mental health knowledge, whether or not it was psychological or psychiatric, weren't fixed in any sort of way, and that this 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 knowledge, um, I guess, shouldn't be regarded as universal. Shouldn't be regarded as atemporal or even a hundred percent objective, and just by putting sort of a spotlight on the 60s and the 70s, you can see just sort of how fluid um, that knowledge was. Within the sciences, the side disciplines, there were struggles over the validity of psychoanalysis. Uh, you know, some of the radicals I, um, you know, I unpick and, and sort of um, showcase in Break On Through, talked about the need for more uh, evidence-based approaches and biological approaches. Um, at the same time, you had the emergence of slightly new, uh, fringy maybe, uh, mental health treatments, uh, sort of uh, primal therapy was one. Uh, Arthur Janoff uh, put this forward in California. But then at the same time, again, on the periphery, you had the rise of parapsychology in in the late 60s, 1970s, as, as sort of 
part of this bubbling ferment of ideas. Uh, so even the head of the American Psychiatric Association um, in 1968, his name was Raymond Wagoner, said that change was necessary. Um, and I, I just jotted down one of the quotes from the book. He, he said that change was a catchword in American life and that the American psychiatrists ought to be more action-oriented, that we shouldn't be afraid to be social activists. And he added, and remember, this is the head of the APA. He says psychiatry ought to play a more constructive role in our future society. And so, you know, I, I thought that that was interesting uh, for a lot of reasons. And I think it's interesting now, too. Yeah, becoming much more relevant by the day, maybe, it seems like. Yeah, I, I certainly think so, yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, this kind of like this fluidness of the of the time period, the kind of not fixedness going on. Um, a lot of like the primal therapies and stuff like that that were being tried at the time. I know a lot of our listeners and a lot of our readers are going to be familiar with the psychiatric survivors movement and, um, and Judy Chamberlain and what she did for that. And I know um, you've written a, about that for Mad America before a little bit. Um, so I wonder if you could speak to the counterculture's influence on the, on the psychiatric survivors movement and, um, and Judy Chamberlain a bit. Yeah, it's, uh, it's important, I think, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, I guess I would say, first of all, about the psychiatric uh, survivor movement that a lot more people need to be engaged with uh, this sort of history and this sort of work. Uh, and I think that a lot more can be written about this in the future. I think that um, other people like myself um, who do this uh, as writers need to work more closely um, with these movements to, to tell the stories better uh, in the future. So that's the first thing I'd say. Um, I, you know, I reckon that um, the, the, the countercultural movement, that the, the protest and the activism um, definitely influenced the, the movement, the psychiatric survivor movement. Um, you, you see ex-mental patients, uh, interest groups emerging that, um, that organized uh, all sorts of demonstrations. They circulated petitions. They had all sorts of awesome lobbying activities, um, but then also uh, initiated uh, legal proceedings against uh, different mental health groups and institutions. So there's a real uh, there's a real sort of connection institutionally and and the way they actually acted between sort of the countercultural anti-war activism, um, civil rights activism, and then also the, um, the psychiatric survivor movement activism. And so it's important to think of them as part of a, a whole, if you will. One historian, his name is Jeffrey Rion, uh, has made the case that um, the psychiatric survivor movements didn't necessarily achieve the level of support of um, African-American civil rights or, or anti-Vietnam protesters, um, but they still uh, exerted a, a, a very real, very tangible influence on mental health policy and, and on terminology. 
I guess I just look forward to reading more in the future about this. I don't think that the book has been written on on the influence uh, of the psychiatric survivor movement. So I'd be I'm looking forward to learning more myself. So you write about the 70s that radical ideas either matured, faded away, or became mainstream. Um, kind of a lot going on at the time. Like you mentioned earlier, a lot of radical ideas all over the place. Um, so I'm wondering if you could uh, maybe speak to that a little bit. Maybe give us an, I- an idea about what a radical idea maturing looks like versus what one becoming mainstream looks like. I think cannabis is a good example. So the debate over cannabis, uh, many of us know, uh, in 2021, cannabis is placing, uh, pressure on public health officials, on politicians, on psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, small business owners, uh, marginalized groups. And this is the same 50 years ago when, you know, when I was, that's the setting of the book nowadays, uh, we've got this sort of uh, high intensity increased marketing. We've got more uh, availability of CBD, super high THC content products that are synthetic. We've got more and more consumer demand. And I guess what I try to do in the book uh, and in some of my other work is try to understand the links between cannabis and mental health policy. And uh, sort of connect the past and the present. So, what I do is I sketch uh, some of the theories uh, and debates about cannabis and mental health in the 1930s, 1940s, and then really, really focus in on the 60s and the 70s. And for the longest time in uh, in the U.S. and other places, um, cannabis was thought to drive you uh, totally nuts and public announcements and posters suggested that, you know, a single puff uh, would turn you into some sort of axe murderer or some sort of sexual deviant. And, you know, many, many mental health specialists, whether or not it was psychiatrists or psychologists, supported that idea in the courts and beyond. But then there's a bit of a shift in the 60s and the 70s where you see some of the radicals that I talk about in the book are suggesting that it's actually time to look uh, a lot more closely uh, at the sort of causal and the associative links between mental illness and cannabis use. That you couldn't just say, you're going to go bonkers if you smoke a joint. You know, you're not going to become a murderer. You're not going to become a prostitute. We, uh, you're not going to have a schizophrenic break. Let's look at the evidence at this. And so these radicals weren't really proposing anything all that radical, right? They're saying, let's, let's actually study this and let's not just make these huge leaps. And so I guess what I'm saying to answer your question uh, in a roundabout way, is um, that this idea has matured over time, that um, the mental health establishment is has called for more science, and you see more studies growing, uh, 
and I guess I'm hesitant to say that cannabis medicine has become mainstream. The diff- so the difference between mainstream and matured, um, I, I wouldn't say cannabis medicine has become mainstream, uh, especially since it's still Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act, and it's federally illegal. But it's the idea that um, it isn't going to um, always cause mental health uh, breakdowns, uh, cause problems, has matured since the 60s and the 70s. Um, and then about what, what about an idea of becoming mainstream? Can you think of an example of that, like something from the 70s that, that, that is kind of in the mainstream now? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I would say that um, the radicals, as they pushed for uh, essentially uh, more evidence around uh, certain uh, mental health disorders. So one was uh, homosexuality. The radicals said, you know, we need to think more seriously about how we're actually um, creating these disorders and then diagnosing certain people. The radicals suggested that they needed a more biological approach. We couldn't just uh, call someone something that we needed to actually think seriously about how this happened. So you begin to see a, a, a shift towards um, biological psychiatry and um, a little bit of a move away from psychoanalytic uh, approaches. And um, I'd argue, and others have written more forcefully and, and better than I can about um, the struggle between um, biological psychiatry and psychoanalysis. But I suppose uh, I'd go out on a limb and say that, you know, this is an idea that has become mainstream, that the biological approach has become mainstream, which is rooted obviously much further back than the 60s and the 70s. But this is something that the radicals were talking about. So you were talking just a few minutes ago about um, cannabis. You're like the newer book that's coming out this year. Um, it's also mm-hmm. cannabis. Um, so I'm wondering if we could talk a bit more about that um, and specifically why for so long we've considered certain interventions or certain certain drugs therapeutic, um, antipsychotics and antidepressants and things like that versus uh, what what some people have called like indigenous drugs, cannabis and um, maybe psilocybin, mescaline, things like that. I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. Like, how do we get to to where we're going to call this class of drugs therapeutic versus this one that's not, despite a, a lot of maybe more uh, more story based evidence, but becoming every day more scientific based evidence as well. So I'm not in my I'm not in the building right now. I, I work at a school of pharmacy in in Madison. Within the, within the building, we have some researchers who are are, are studying psilocybin. Uh, for treatment-resistant depression. So I, I just automatically think about that um, and some of the sort of the, the set and setting, the room that's actually created to help with, with the testing. I guess what I'm trying to, to get at, uh, Richard, with your question, drugs um, become therapeutic or regarded not therapeutic um, because we decide that and how how do we how do we decide what's legitimate and illegitimate legal and illegal uh well you know it's it has to do with risk 
reward calculations, uh, the safety involved. So you have a process uh, that involves doctors and scientists like the ones at my, at my building. Uh, and then you have political actors, uh, uh, champions, you have movements, uh, whether or not it's the psychiatric survivor movements, uh, or you have folks like police chiefs and police forces, um, agencies such as the, the DEA and the FDA that all work within this melting pot with, you know, there are innate, obviously, um, power differentials within that melting pot. But uh, essentially what you see is that there, the decision-making process has to do with, you know, that, that sort of complex uh, way of understanding safety and, and, and risk. The relationships between humans and drugs is overly dependent, overwhelmingly, I should say, dependent on context. Shanghai is not the same as San Francisco, which is not the same as uh, the Andean uh, mountains in Mexico uh, or the plains of Oklahoma, uh, where you know certain individ- um, indigenous groups have used uh, mescaline or, and psilocybin um, for hundreds, if not thousands of years as part of sort of sacramental communion and ways of uh, connecting with their gods. Um, whereas um, I, I suppose other um, white settler colonials might say we want to um, use um, this plant and its derivatives for uh, purely medical purposes and, and divorce it from sort of these these religious uh, these religious uses. Also, sort of to your point and to your question is, you know, how do you how do you medicalize a given substance? Does it begin uh, as uh, a medical substance, or is it begin as sort of a, a multi-use dual substance? So something like uh, ayahuasca or cannabis or mescaline or psilocybin uh, began as substances that served multiple purposes and had multiple meanings, whereas antidepressants and antipsychotics were a product of Western medicine and emerged as part of a pharmaceutical process. So you've kind of spoken about how a lot of this stuff you're writing about is tied tied up in these kind of systems of power that exist really all over the place. Um, and you've written critically about um, the history of psychiatry, kind of especially charting some of these radical movements. Um, I'm wondering if you yourself have faced any obstacles because of that, that you can remember any, any significant pushback you can recall. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, my, I, I guess automatically I, I go to, I, I faced obstacles and pushback that were both external and internal. Uh, I don't want to make this too much about me, uh, but you know, some of the obstacles I faced um, were uh, a self-doubt. Can I get this project done? Am I good enough to do this project? Right. Uh, 
So that's an obstacle. I mean, a lot of people um, in everyday life, in academia, business, elsewhere, I mean, there's that um, sort of nagging self-doubt that hangs around uh, over our heads. So that's one thing. But also, was this project feasible? Was it, was it um, something uh, that was achievable? And does it really make a mark? And I, I think, you know, I, I played around with that. And I think it is important that we think uh, about psychiatry, psych- um, psychology, mental health knowledge from different perspectives. And so that's what I was trying to do um, with my book and, and my writing is not just um, focus on the elite doctors uh, and um, people in positions of power, but also wider societal trends. And I think that, that is, it is ultimately valuable um, to have that sort of uh, approach. So internally, there's that. But then externally, uh, I did have, I guess maybe, I don't know if it was an obstacle or pushback or what, but I mean, actually getting a hold of the records is sometimes uh, troubling for, uh, for writers. I mean, you can do interviews uh, and you can, you can mine other sorts of uh, data, but you know the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, as much as I uh, tried to get a hold of um, records, uh, simply didn't want to play ball, and uh, that is perfectly up to them uh, to share their records and their documents. Um, but at the same time, you know, in making a case about radicals in the American Psychiatric Association. I think that um, that sort of barrier is one that um, I don't think hindered the, the book and my writing too much, but definitely it leaves the door open for other writers uh, and scholars in the future to build on what I've done if they can get access uh, to APA uh, records. All right. Wondering if you can tell us about something you learned while you were working on Break On Through. Um, that most of us probably don't know uh, that you think might be important for us to know? That's a good one. So there are all sorts of power structures in, in psychiatry and uh, in psychology and especially just in, in mental health more generally. So I think about these power structures in and around psychiatry So I think about them, again, within uh, the institution of psychiatry, but then I also think about um, it's important to recognize the power structures outside of psychiatry and how it reinforces them. So how does mental health knowledge reinforce uh, or challenge existing hierarchies uh, and, and, and power differentials in society? That's, the, that's sort of like a preface to what I want to talk about, which is uh, the idea that, you know, nowadays, gender, feminism, and sex are very important, just like with the Black Lives Matter movement is so important that we think about divisions within society. And one thing that I learned in, in all the research that I did is that how, is just how much psychiatry itself underpinned uh, traditional definitions of, uh, of gender, 
uh, and how psychiatry in a lot of ways also uh, was challenged by feminism and the sexual politics in the 1960s and the 1970s. And ultimately, you begin to see a bit of a reassessment of, of certain uh, uh, sexual and gender-based hierarchies um, throughout the, the 70s. So it was a real learning experience for me. Um, you know, I, you know, as a young young kid, as a, as an undergrad, I learned about um, just on the surface. I learned about mother's little helpers, uh, right? I mean, the idea of uh, women taking benzodiazepines um, and and how essentially Benny's um, reinforce sort of. Um, the nuclear family in a way uh, they reinforced sort of the traditional family setup. And so in writing the book um, and, and learning more about uh, radicalism and mental health, I found that pushing back against these practices and prescription of uh, benzodiazepines, pushing back against mothers, little helpers actually challenged notions of the, you know, quote unquote, dutiful mother and the obedient housewife. Uh, and, you know, essentially that a lot of people felt that the mental health establishment was a means to control women, uh, a means to, you know, mental health was a way to um, police or surveil propriety, uh, you know, the, the mental health um, the mental health establishment um, was a way um, to was a way essentially to control women, and so that was that was something that I learned certainly, uh, and um, and I, I found it really fascinating. I think that also uh, another thing that maybe I learned that listeners may or may not know about is that the ethical codes around patient um, and uh, provider uh, contact, sexual contact didn't change until the 1970s. These ethical codes in the American Psychiatric Association finally declared sexual activity with patients unethical in 1973. The American Psychoanalytic Association um, said it was uh, declared sexual activity with patients, um, wasn't allowed in 1975. Um, the American Psychological Association said it was unethical in 1977. So, I mean, I guess all I'm saying is that inc- this is incredibly late in my, in, you know, in my view. I didn't know a ton about this when I, I started off reading and researching this. And so I think this is all, you know, these changes uh, in, the, in the 1970s are a direct result of, of women radicals in mental medicine um, pushing back against the establishment and pushing back, I guess, against patriarchy. You, you talked a little bit just now about uh, those power structures and um, kind of the, the idea that a lot of the, the radicals... Um, thought of psychiatry and psychology as something that kind of kept women um, in, in like in their place, so to speak, that kind of uh, exalted control over them. 
Um, I've read authors write similar things about like minority communities, for instance. I know um, authors have written things about minority communities being reluctant to like go to medical doctors, to go to psychiatric doctors, things like that. Um, so it's kind of a two-part thing, um, I guess, is is there is there anything that discipline can do to kind of to, to heal those wounds, do you think? And is it a good idea for those groups that maybe have been kind of oppressed to, to, to use that term by psychology in the past? Um, is it a good idea for them to kind of embrace it, do you think? So, yeah, I, I think that probably uh, psychologists should own its past for all its strengths and weaknesses uh, and be ready to collaborate uh, and, and, and try and uh, work as much as they possibly can with different populations being as frank as they, as they can. I have some colleagues uh, in the School of Pharmacy who, who work with different uh, marginalized populations in Milwaukee and Madison and, and elsewhere, and they, they tell me that this is hard. This is, this is not an easy pro, uh, easy sort of um, progress to make. Focus groups, uh, conversations have to happen, and trust isn't earned overnight. I think there's a real legacy of oppression um, with mainstream medicine in certain groups. Again, some colleagues of mine, their own work bears this out that there's a lot of a lot of mistrust and. I'm not sure if I'm the guy to answer necessarily how to overcome that, but I think certainly the radicals in the 60s and the 70s suggest in their writings that it's, it was important to embrace, uh, embrace what was happening and not be as neutral about um, outside forces. All right. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate the talk. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.